Thank you, Emily. That was the mammoth reading. Thank you so much. Uh, It's good to take a longer section sometimes of of a gospel, and uh, we're going to do that this morning. Uh, Just to introduce myself, so I'm Edward, the rector. Lovely to uh, be all gathered together in person and uh, welcome online as well. Let's pray before we, we begin. Lord, as we read about all that happened those years ago, we're reminded today that you are still alive and with the same power today that you had then. So please, would you help us to understand more about your transforming power and how it might affect our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was a boy growing up in Beckenham in South London, I always looked forward to a summer day out to the beautiful woods of Toys Hill in the North Downs. Anybody been to Toys Hill? No? Oh, one person. Fantastic, one person. Um, and I think they give the, the woods in Chilton a bit of run for their money, but the woods are very good here too. My brother and I uh, would spend hours exploring the woods, playing hide-and-seek and capture the flag. And uh, then came the great storm of 1987, the worst storm to hit the south of England for 300 years, which ripped up thousands of trees by their roots, and 19 people were killed. You may remember that Michael Fish, the BBC weatherman, became notorious for missing this event uh, in the sort of weather forecast that night, in fact, telling people that there was nothing to be concerned about. He never lived it down. And I can remember uh, driving around the area soon after and taking in the scene of devastation. 98% of all the trees of Toys Hill had been destroyed. It was the first time I really took in the immense power of nature. What force in our world is greater than the power of nature? Well, the Bible tells us in our reading this morning there is one force that's greater even than nature, and that is the creator of that nature, the one who is called in the Bible the Lord God Almighty. And it's that greater force, that supreme authority, that transforming power to which all other forces and powers give way, which we see Jesus yielding when he calms the storm with just a few words. And the question is, how will Jesus use this power when it comes to human beings like you and me? What does he want to see changed? What in our own lives could he still transform? And that's our focus this morning. We're part of a series in Christian Foundations, and so far we've seen that following Jesus will shape our attitudes. Material comfort is no longer the highest goal in our lives. We've seen how following Jesus shapes our actions. We're to behave towards others as we would expect them to behave towards us. Lives live by grace and love. And we've seen that following Jesus will shape our affirmations, that Jesus is someone in whom we can place our trust. And we've also seen that Jesus uh, can help us to find forgiveness and to grow in fruitfulness in our lives. And now we're looking at how Jesus involves us in a process of transformation at the deepest level. So let's dive in and look more closely at his transforming power. Have a look at verse 46 on the back of your service sheets. We read, Jesus says, I know that power has gone out from me. The word there for power is dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. We're talking strong power here. 
And in this long reading, we've seen a number of different things. Jesus has the power to calm a storm, to set a man free from demons, heal and cleanse a woman, and raise a child from the dead. Extraordinary, extravagant, dynamic power. And they show Jesus' power over the three greatest enemies of the human race, over evil, over disease, and over death. And we see, in other words, that Jesus has the power to, to, to deal with us at every level of, of the human being, at the level of the mind and of the body and of the spirit. And those will be our three points this morning. Let's see how Jesus firstly transforms our minds. Transforms our minds. Verse 35, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. So Jesus transforms our minds. He has the capability to do that. And I wonder if you notice how Luke describes this demon-possessed man that Jesus met on the other side of Lake Galilee, beyond the borders of Israel, in what is Gentile territory, hence all the pigs that are there that we're going to discover later. Before he met Jesus, this man, we're told, was naked, homeless, chained, although he had such strength that these demons had given within him that he'd broken these chains uh, that others had used to try and restrain him. But I sense a bit like bracelets, he's still sort of carrying them around with the chains hanging down, going around, but like sort of uh, Marley's ghost in uh, you know, a, a Christmas story. So he was, in other words, beyond help and beyond restraint. And when asked his name, it's the spirits that answer. His mind is completely dominated by this evil presence. He has long since given up the struggle to be himself and to control his own life. The battle is over, it seems, and it looks like evil has won. And here is what evil left unchecked ultimately does to a human being. Here was a real taste of hell on earth. But when these evil spirits encountered in Jesus, the Son of the Most High, they know they are beaten. That's how they address him, as the Son of the Most High God. And the demons, with Jesus' permission, flee from his presence into the herd of pigs. And the sheer number of them, Mark's Gospel tells us that there were 2,000 pigs, visualizes for us not just the extent of the man's problem, but also the extent of Jesus' authority and power. And when the locals come to find out what has happened, they find this man, look at again in verse 35, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. His transformation is wonderfully complete. His ability to think clearly, to take control of himself, His self-esteem and identity have been restored. Such is the power of Jesus. Now, if you've ever watched some of those uh, house makeover programs, perhaps we've been working from home, might sort of uh, had an indulgence during uh, the the lockdowns, and uh, seen that transformation from a, a cluttered, faded, tired room or house to a clean, fresh, modern decoration, well, it can look very impressive, can't it? and uh, make us sort of think, oh, my house needs that. But anyway, what Jesus is doing here is something far more fundamental. It involves getting rid of the sitting tenants who've wrecked the joint, destroyed every room, ripped out the plumbing, and imprisoned the owner in the cellar. 
It involves a deep cleanse and restoration of the house from cellar to attic. So this is good as the day that it was built. That's a sense of something that Jesus is doing here to this man, setting him wonderfully free, restoring him, and putting him into his right mind. Sometimes we think, I think, that if we follow Jesus, we will lose control. We will lose our identity. But actually, this man shows us that it's exactly the opposite. We find ourselves, we find our freedom in and through Jesus transforming our lives. So the transformed life begins with a renewal of the mind that only Jesus can bring as the creator. So, of course, this demon-possessed man is an extreme example of the very worst that could happen to us. But wherever we swallow the devil's lives and mistruths, wherever we dabble in the demonic, things like Ouija boards or tarot cards, we give evil a foothold in our thoughts. And after a while, we no longer know our right mind. Way back in 1963, a man called Harry Blamires wrote a book called The Christian Mind. My thesis, he writes, is this. There is no Christian mind, except there are a few narrow field of thinking, chiefly touching questions of strictly personal conduct. We Christians in the modern world accept, for the purpose of mental activity, a frame of reference constructed by the secular mind. The secular mind being a mind which excludes God rather than having him at the center. It's why we struggle, even in a, this, uh, with this passage like this, to accept that evil spirits really do exist. Because secular thought tells us that they are imaginary. But we are invited here to, to embrace Jesus' view of the world, God's view of the world. And the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Rome... Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, to its thinking, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. And the more we look at Jesus, the more we learn from him and understand, like the disciples, after the calming of the storm, who he is, the more we will come into our right minds, in and through Jesus Christ. And having come into our right minds, we will want, like this man, set free from evil spirits, to be with Jesus and to tell others about him, how he can transform our minds too and truly set us free. So that's our first point this morning. Jesus transformed our minds. He shows us what reality is really like. It's not the limited view of the secular mind. The Christian mind is far, far broader. It embraces all that we can see and all that we can't see. And what Jesus shows us is true. The second point is, as well as our minds, Jesus transforms our bodies as well. Have a look at verse 43. A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. So we see in the healing of this woman with a blood condition that Jesus has the power to transform our bodies as well and make them whole. The woman, we're told, had been bleeding for a long time, 12 years. It's probably the sort of problem that we would have dealt with today with a hysterectomy. But in these times, Luke is very clear, no one could help her. Though many had taken their doctor's fee anyway, but now her resources were spent. And it wasn't just a debilitating physical condition 
It was a spiritual one too. It rendered her unclean according to the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. It's why she tried to move through the crowd unseen. Like the centurion in the previous chapter, she doesn't want to to bother Jesus. She just wants to reach out and take some of his power by touching his cloak. Actually, that power then does flow from him into her. And in an instant, she knows that she is healed, cleansed, transformed. Today, I think, if we were that woman, we'd have not thought of going to Jesus. If she'd lived in Britain like us, she'd have kept her money in her pocket, popped down to the local surgery and sought help free of charge on the NHS. But the more that we live, I think the more we become aware that doctors only have a limited number of tools at their disposal. Sometimes they can help, but often they can't help. They can treat the body, find cures for some diseases, and we're very grateful, aren't we, for it. But even then, one day, our bodies will fail. And what we see here is Jesus' power to transform our bodies and make them whole. And before we say, to, okay, say, okay, Jesus, please can you sort out this, this, and this in my uh, body, we need to look at what Jesus does when he realizes that this power has gone out from him when the woman lay hold of his cloak. He stops and calls the, for the person who has done this to come forward. And after a while, when she realizes she's not going to get away with this, she comes trembling before him, falls at his feet, and tells him her story. She has in mind really what she could get out of Jesus, but Jesus seeks something more, doesn't he? he to know her and to be known by her. Because physical healing was only a way to point to something far greater that he wants to do in our lives through restoring us to God our Father, that one day that healing would be something we could all experience in the life to come. In a way, it's the same. When he talks about, you know, your faith has healed you, that word healed there is the same word for saved that is actually used by Jesus for another woman in the previous chapter who came and seeking forgiveness from him. And to her, he says, your faith has saved you. But it's the same word here that he uses. It's a sense that this healing that she's receiving and the spiritual cleansing that she's also receiving are all of a piece that salvation includes our spiritual cleansing, but also being made whole now, in part, one day, fully. And the woman here experiences just a taste of that full wholeness of her body that will one day come. It's a taste of what Jesus will do in the lives of all who will put their trust in him, to all who will reach out and take hold of the hem of his cloak. It's a wonderful picture there of, of, of trusting in Jesus, just that, that faith she had of reaching out and taking hold of his cloak. And when we bring the troubles of our own bodies before him today, in the hope of that future promise of wholeness and health, we do so in the knowledge that this is his power to use as and when he chooses to use it. Wonderfully, we get tastes of it now. But it's a hope of an appointed to all that will lie ahead in the future. And in the knowledge that it's our souls that matter more than our bodies. Which brings us to our last point, last way in which Jesus transforms us. We've seen he transforms our minds, if we will let him. How he transforms our bodies. 
and how he will transform our spirits as well. That's our third point. Jesus transforms our spirit. Have a look at verse 54. Jesus takes this girl who has died, Jairus' daughter, by the hand and says, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. And then Jesus told them to give her something to eat, and her parents were, rather understandably, astonished. Do you know, just think of the story of this for a moment. It must have been heart-wrenching when Jairus, knowing that his daughter lay dying and there wasn't a minute to lose, discovers that Jesus is actually over the other side of the lake. So he waits for Jesus to return, and when he finds Jesus returned and persuades him to visit his home, has the journey then interrupted by another person in need. And then the news that he has dreaded was brought to him. His daughter has died. Her spirit had left her. She lay beyond the teacher's powers. And so that's what everyone thought. But then to discover that they, in in his own heart, had been wonderfully wrong, gloriously wrong, that Jesus did have the power and authority to bring back from the dead and restore his daughter, restore her spirit to her body. No wonder they were lost for words. So here then is is the full extent of Jesus' transforming power over our minds, over our bodies, and over our spirit. This is why he is called the Saviour and the Lord, because there are no limits to his power. Man, woman, or child, as we see in this passage, he uses his power for our good. We see that he's opposed to evil and sickness and death, the very things that harm us and bring pain and grief into our lives. They're the very opposite of what he stands for, which is goodness and health and life. The greatest of blessings are to be found in him and through him. If you're going through the high street, you're not going to the butchers to buy a pair of candles. And you don't go to the spec savers to buy a loaf of bread. So if we want to experience these blessings, it is to Jesus that we need to come. All he has to do is to issue a rebuke and the storm is calmed. Command the evil spirits and they obey. Say to Jairus' daughter, my child, get up. And up she gets from her deathbed. Such is the power to be found in Jesus' words. In the end, it's our spirits which outlast our bodies which matter most. And that's why we still need Jesus today. He will do something far greater for us than he did for Jairus' daughter. He has promised to all who believe in him a place with him in heaven where our spirits will be given new resurrection bodies. And that's what the evil spirits feared most, being disembodied, sent back to the abyss, formless and nameless. But those who entrust their spirit into Jesus' hands, the same hands who raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, can, when the time comes, let go of these frail bodies and receive a glorious, resurrected, transformed body without all the aches and pains that we experience now. So the Apostle Paul puts it this way, we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So in the face of the news of the death of his daughter, Jesus tells Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. And he has the same words for us, don't be afraid, just 
believe in me. For those of us approaching the end of our lives, and for those of us who have lost loved ones, don't be afraid, just believe. I have something in store for you and for your loved ones, for all who trust in me, far greater than what I did for Jairus' daughters all those years ago. As Jesus told Martha, grieving the death of her brother Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So Jesus has uses his power to transform the human mind, the human body, and the human spirit. To follow him is to begin a process of transformation that begins with the renewal of our minds and ends in our resurrection. And the church's task is not to have bishops for Brexit, as was suggested in General Synod this week, but to draw our culture's attention back to these realities of evil and sickness and uncleanness before God and death, and to point to the only one who has the transforming power to change all those things and to bring goodness and health and wholeness and eternal life. Well, it's good to talk about this, isn't it? But what I want to do is to, is to actually end by uh, sharing a, a, a video with you of uh, someone's life who was transformed. It's, we have a mission partner here, uh, Bethel, uh, that help people get, uh, deal with various addictions in their lives. And uh, this is the story of um, Paula, a Portuguese lady, who's uh, ended up actually with Maria King, who's, who's our uh, mission partner, in the Bethel house in Birmingham. So that would be great to share her story with you this morning. So uh, let's just enjoy this as uh, we think about, thinking about, well, okay, what does God want to do in my life? How does he still need to transform me? Let's listen to this video. Hi there, my name is Paula Wood. I am 56 years old and I've been in Bethel almost 26 years. It will be 26 years on the 5th of January of 2022. So I am from Portugal. I came to Bethel as I said, uh, as an addict, I was living in the streets of Portugal for a year before I came to Patel. I was homeless. I didn't have any hope for my life. I didn't have any projects for the future. But I lived with a, 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 a big pain in my heart because I had a son. I had left my son living with my mom. And uh, I was constantly thinking of him. And one day I decided that I needed to change my life because I needed to be a mom for him. His dad was in prison at that time. I found out about Betel. I came to Betel in Madrid. In the beginning I found everything really different, weird. So many people living together. It was all very new for me. In the first months I found community life and everything about Christianity and everything that was going on around me. I didn't want it. I didn't like it. And I have to be honest, I only stayed at that time because I didn't have another place to go. My mother didn't want me, so I stayed. But as the time went by, I started to feel attracted, especially to the people that I was living with. Um, they were wonderful. They always treat me very kindly. 
They loved me so much when I was so unlovable. And I started in my heart to have the desire to be like them, even though I didn't agree with Christianity and I thought it was a bit, no, God can be for them, but not for me. I love the people that I, that I lived with. And uh, so unexpectedly, one day in one of our meetings in the middle of the week, it was not even a, a big meeting in the church, God really touched my heart. It was through a worship song in the end, and uh, the words really impacted me. And in that night, on my own, I gave my life to the Lord. I realized that I was a sinner. I realized that I needed a savior, and I gave my life to him until today and until the end of my days, I believe. It was amazing. My life was so wonderful. And my first husband, um, he was in Battalion, Portugal at that time. So we had, I had plans for my future because I was married with him. He was an addict with me. And uh, so my plan was to get together with him in the center and bring our son to live with us. So several months after I became a Christian, I had the, the news that my husband died. He died with an overdose. And I was devastated <laughs> because I thought God promised me that he would repair the years that locusts have eaten, and that didn't happen the way I thought. So after it was sad, but I, I kept, I moved on and I kept trusting the Lord. And uh, after several more months, I had the opportunity of bringing my older son to live with me in community. The court gave him to me because he was given to my mother when he was born. Uh, so he came to live with me at that time in Seville, where I was living the, the women's house at that time. And then while I was in Seville, um, I was asked by my pastors one day if I was uh, interested to come to England, because I understood a little bit of English, if I wanted to come to lead women's work in Batel. So my plans in my heart was I would be single all my life, I'll be a single mom missionary, and here I came to my son, to England, to open the women's house. So me and my firstborn, his name is Raphael, came and opened the girls' house in November of 1999. The work started. Um, I met my husband, Wayne, at the time. He was the leader in the men's house. Eventually, we got married. It's, it's a long story that I could tell you another time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we got married. We've been married 20 years now. And we had our second son, his name is Aaron. From Birmingham, we went to Watford, where we opened the Watford Centre. Then we went to Nottingham, where we lived for the past 15 years. And now we are back in Birmingham, where everything started. Uh, we've been back since May of this year. And uh, we feel very happy to be, for us, this is home and where everything started. We are part, Wayne and myself, part of the pastoral team here in Birmingham. I also work in the accounts department for the new Anchor Point building and for the Anchor Point church. And uh, yeah, so I'm just very excited for the next thing that God has for us as individuals, as a couple, but also as a church and as a team. Thank you.